Call it indie, underground, cult or just second run, Art House was the hallway off to one side from the cinema franchises, which you also went to, and led down dark turns to the same kind of place where the band you liked looked and dressed like you and was you, but for one or two special ideas. Whether it was the dark and powerful weirdness of a razorhead, the quirky hilarity of Repo Man, the solemnity of Paris, Texas, the title was on your list or on your lips whenever you met with your tribal others. The mainstream exploded with Spielbergianism, which you also knew about and chewed popcorn to. But down there, in the gum-matted carpet of the art house, you went in tanked on goon because you never knew how much protection you were going to need. Art house wasn't just cool. It was scary. A word about this podcast, there are two things to note. One is fairly liberal use of the C word because it's appropriate to the discussion of the film Liquid Sky, which we spoil massively. It all began when Glenn came round and I asked... Okay, Glenn, if I say the word arthouse cinema, what do you think of? Okay, arthouse cinema for me is something that is um, generally uh, left of centre, sometimes far left of centre. It's also the place where you might see non-Western films. So it's a really interesting space. It's a space where you can encounter um, film that is not purely designed for the popcorn crowd. Okay. No, I wouldn't have any dispute with that particularly. But I'm curious also uh, to wed this Mm. with another theme that we're talking about, which is indie music. Yeah. Alternative music, which is the term we would sure. use in the time frame we're talking about, early 80s. Do you see a correlation? I do, because I think, as we said in one of the other episodes, indie culture was never just about music. And for me, growing up in Perth, it was about having access to 6UVS FM, the um, alternative, the sound alternative, as it was called, the university uh, radio station. Um, That's where you could hear music that wasn't on the top 40. It was about theatre. It was about installations. But most importantly, I think it was about um, the mixing up of all those things. In fact, if my memory serves, I remember um, encountering Perth's version of happenings, so installations that had music, um, people who were painters, friends of mine who studied art at the West Australian Institute of Technology, Mm. also playing in bands. There was that really strong connection between art school and alternative music. Um, So there was this really rich culture that emerged, I think, uh, at that time. And I think it was happening all over the world. It wasn't just Australia, but there was this sense of exploration. So, yes, um, it was not just about music. Uh, And and cinema was uh, a big part of that. Yes, it was. It was almost like a a badge that you could wear by saying, okay, this is the one I've seen most recently. So have you seen this? Have you seen Videodrome? Have you seen in an earlier, slightly earlier uh, generation, have you seen El Topo? Have you seen a Razorhead? The, the other tie between alternative culture 
uh, not just the music, but that idea. One of the things that punk actually did was to make the audience and the band kind of the same. So the idea that the band, the guitarist needed to be a virtuoso was just not there. The attitude was far more important. Good songs, fine. But you went to see a band to kind of connect. And as we talked about in the Britain one, there was a political element to that of culture, um, mm -hmm. which was important. And the same kind of thing applies to Art House from that time. And we'll get onto this a little in more detail with Liquid Sky discussing that. But I remember it was where you'd go to see things like um, uh, John Waters movies, which had that kind of campiness that was an intentional lo-fi, low-budget, mm -hmm. trashy look to them. It was, it, it was part of the charm of it. Um, I found that uh, attitude really refreshing about a contemporary art house is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Some new thing from the US, like Liquid Sky was or the UK, or something, who knows where, and I'm struggling to think of examples. But you were ready to pay for something that didn't look like Ben-Hur, or didn't look like Spielberg. Something that kind of uh, flaunted its humble origins, because it's, it had perhaps an idea that was worth saying. If you look at early Cronenberg, that's the same kind of thing. And he made um, uh, his early films like Shivers and Rabbit for the American, the US, not Canada, uh, drive-in market. So he's intentionally, happily doing a Roger Corman, William Castle kind of deal because he yeah. knew the ideas were going to go through. I think I liked that, that, that blurring where it could be, you didn't quite know all the time. I mean, it could be politically kind of challenging. Yeah. Culturally challenging. To yeah. go and see something that had a bit of clout, that someone was, a bit of buzz, perhaps someone was yeah. talking about. Yeah. So you went along to see this thing, not quite knowing. And the the gaffer-taped aspect of it, the wooden ass acting, or the, um, yeah. the, 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 I think I can, I think I can, <laughs> uh, 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 execution, yeah. was charm, it's not the right word, but it's part of the experience and it's part of one of those things you almost champion. Right, and Liquid Sky is a great example mm. of what you're talking it's about. It's all of the above, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and it was a film that had a huge impact on me. I loved the film. My, in fact, my memory of the film was that it was some kind of masterpiece. Okay. That's how strong, wow. you know, my, my memory of the my kind of like visceral response to the film okay. was at the time. Now, last year I saw the remastered version of the film in New York yes, at the Quad yes, Cinema yes. Um, in New York City. Interesting. Experience. And uh, I was waiting for the earth to move and it didn't, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I was a little disappointed because, you know, I, I had this really powerful memory of... Um, being totally blown away by Liquid Sky. Mm -hmm. I, and uh, it got me thinking about, well, why has that impact diminished over time? Okay. And uh, I think one of the reasons is that when I saw Liquid Sky, I was embedded in a subculture whose values resonated with the values of the subculture that's depicted in the film. Right. 
The passage of time, I think, has diminished my connection to the film. Now, that's not to say that you cannot enjoy um, artworks from the past or all artworks diminish with the passage of time. Mm -hmm. But there is something about, I guess, being embedded in a particular world that um, has an impact on the way a work of art, whether it be a film or a book, finds its audience. And I think looking at the film from the point of view of uh, an older, let us say, a mature person, uh, really changes the the, the way I I read it. Your your values have developed over that time as well. Well, Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But what do you mean? Um, Well, because you would look upon something like Liquid Sky and you go, okay, that's, that's... that's made for two cents. I understand that. So you, you can then make a decision as to whether you look around that and go, well, what's it really saying? Because yeah. um, the idea in it is kind of powerful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take time out. I'm going to read the, the synopsis from IMDb so oh, the, okay, sure. the players at home can know what we're talking about. Invisible aliens in a tiny flying saucer come to Earth looking for heroin. They land on top of a New York apartment inhabited by a drug dealer and her androgynous bisexual nymphomaniac lover who's also a fashion model. The aliens soon find the human pheromones created in the brain during orgasm are preferable to heroin. And the model's casual sex partners begin disappearing. The, this increasingly bizarre scenario is observed by a lonely woman in the building across the street, a German scientist who's following the aliens, and an equally androgynous, drug-addicted male model. Both models are played by Anne Carlyle. Uh, darkly funny and thoroughly weird. Uh, I dispute some of those points, but that's basically it. It's not quite an alien invasion film, but it does involve that. That's its premise, and the aliens are... They're kind of low-life intergalactic beings. They're just junkies. And they, they go heroin mining, and, but they find in the humans, the chemicals in the human brain during orgasm are a much greater high. Right. And uh, apparently liquid sky is a term for heroin. Yes. So, um, That's actually in a scene. Yeah, yeah. Where a, a heroin junkie um, has a little monologue um, <clears throat> about as he's cooking it up and about to sort of uh, partake. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to see if we've got any... So drugs, aliens, sex... Um, and fashion. <laughs> fashion, yeah. Uh, all of those come together. And uh, what do you make... Let's, let's take this bit by bit. What do you make of the, the representation of the culture, the milieu? Well, to me, uh, at the time... Uh, I was fascinated by, um, I guess, what you'd call post-punk music. Mm -hmm. um, And fashion was a huge part of that. Um, I was also interested in drugs Mm -hmm. and took all sorts of drugs at that time. So that was another reason, I think, that I connected with the film. Mm -hmm. But the film also presented a romantic vision of um, a certain kind of like club culture that I wanted to access, but in Perth kind of really couldn't. I mean, there were aspects of it that were recognisable. What really struck me, I think, when I first saw it was the extent to which it uh, fed into my fandom of David Bowie. I just thought, wow, this is, 
you know, I mean, you've got all the Bowie tropes here in the film, the alien, uh, you know, quite, not quite, and fashion, absolutely. Turn to the left, turn to yeah, the right, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also visually there was the sense that the film was echoing Ashes to Ashes. The, well, both the film has name checked in it. Absolutely, About he does. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so there was all of that kind of stuff, mm. and it did seem to feed into this um, narcissistic aspect of the subculture. I think I was embedded in, you know. So there, it, which which was a sort of throwback to various incarnations okay. of aestheticism, you yeah. know, which once again connect with Bowie. So, um, what I didn't know mm-hmm. at the time was that what was happening in New York um, was very much uh, a, um, what you had was the emergence of something called like the downtown scene. Mm -hmm. So this is like a geographical area of New York, like below 14th Street. So this is Lower Manhattan. So in Lower Manhattan, that was traditionally where like a lot of the um, immigrants got off at Ellis Island um, and they lived in tenements in Lower Manhattan. In the 1980s, uh, ironically, also, this is where Wall Street is. Yeah. Right? So it's the yeah. financial district on one side, and then you've Order got rich. all of these sort of like tenements uh, in the East Village, which is now like a yuppie mm-hmm. paradise. This is where all those clubs were, like the Mud Club, CBGBs. Rents were very low. People could live cheaply, and a whole lot of artists like moved into these areas. So painters, musicians, and this is where this sort of downtown scene in New York developed. And I think when I saw the film, um, we had traces of a a similar sort of culture. It didn't Mm -hmm. quite cohere. But, you know, as I said before, it wasn't just about music. It was about, you know, artists forming bands and people in bands painting and writing and this sort of like uh, mixture of different forms of artistic expression seemed to, in some ways, shape the culture. Okay. And it seemed that the, that Liquid Sky mm. presented this incredibly uh, tantalizing, glamorous, idealized version of that, where people okay. were kind of, you know, the, the, the characters had this sort of um, cynical, I don't give a fuck yeah. attitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a certain cynicism that I kind of detect, you know, everyone was ironic. It was very hard to actually, you couldn't even, I remember, you know, uh, thinking for a long time, how do I tell my girlfriend that I love her? Mm -hmm. It was not cool to, you know, to say that that Mm. sort of stuff. It was like, we're too cool for this. We know that like relationships are shit and things are going to fall apart. And so let's just take drugs and, you know, uh, and <laughs> there was something weirdly romantic about that. You know, it's like okay. a, a generation defining itself against, you know, the hippodom that was from the 60s. And, um, you know, I guess there was some of that punk ethos that, that we kind of inherited. We were okay. maybe too young to really be real punks, but the post-punk world seemed to have that kind of very cool, uh, standoffish, cynical attitude to life uh you wouldn't fall and even 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 in the film there is this um you know what is that speech i'm a cunt from connecticut you wanted to know where i'm from i'm from connecticut mayflower stock 
I was taught that my prince would come, and he would be a lawyer, and I would have his children. And on the weekends, we would barbecue. And all the other princes and their princesses would come. And they would say, delicious, delicious. Oh, how boring. Yeah. And this sort of, well, I don't buy the American dream. I've mm -hmm. come to New York, you know. At... And you, you see it, there's a, um, a slew of photos where she's kind of having that sort of high hair, but she, she's in denim and she's unmade up. She yeah. looks like a sweet young kid from yeah. Connecticut, um, which is not what she looks like you know, yeah. in the scene where that's described. So when you flash back to um, the present day of the film, she's very glamorous and, and bone-like. Yeah. I didn't have that impression when I saw that movie of the, the characters. I found that embarrassingly contrived at right. the time because you, you go through these, this club and um, I kind of like the I, I don't really like the synthesized music in yeah. the movie I find it really jarring yeah and sometimes it's meant to be like these, these big sort of you know monstrous marches and, mm -hmm. and waltzes and things like that and it's eight not eternal it's um, dissonant yeah and there's only one scene towards the end which shows the intention of that because people are dancing to music that sounds like it's meant to be dance music yeah. The first time you see this, they're so aloof that if they're dancing to this, this contrived music, they're, they're so refined and so far gone that they're the, the coolest of the cool. That just looked fake to me. And you get these, these things where some very beautiful young things have got this mm -hmm. like uh, Bowie slash facial yeah. makeup and this sort of new romantic mm -hmm. Steve Strange type clothes. Mm -hmm. And they're looking straight to the camera. They're actually—it's like a still. It's like a portrait. Yeah. It's like an Arbus portrait in color, and it just oh, okay. Get on with it because I think I just seen too much of that in like Russell Mulcahy um, video clips on mm -hmm. Countdown, which like total eclipse of the heart. All that, that kind of stuff where they'd be these these mini um, movies of the worst kind you could possibly have. Um, they would make claims on no. There'd be too much to, that would just be simply meaningless in them. That would uh, be this kind of borrowed symbolism. So for we, for me, when I saw that milieu, I thought, well, maybe they're making a comment on how fake this is. See, I see it, see it the opposite way because it's like, uh, you know, interestingly, at the start of the film, you see a mask, and the mask mm -hmm. is shattered like later on in the film, yeah, and the, the film shot, is yeah. all about sort of taking on social roles or. Striking a pose, yeah, yeah, a la Madonna, mm. right? And there is a sense in which that ties up with what I was saying earlier, yeah. that this embrace of artifice mm -hmm. is actually some kind of like critique of authenticity. Like, uh, we're not falling for the romantic myths. Mm. Oh, we know yeah. how things play out. Therefore, mm. what do you do? It's better to, to actually uh, Adopt the mask, mm. strike a pose, mm. and in doing that, oh, yeah. you you actually are seeing through the um, uh, the myth of sincerity. Mm. Okay, I don't dispute any of that, and I think the the film has a stab at it. But I think the the film's um, expression of it just feels like uh, someone from the previous generation saying, "Look at what these young things are up to today." <laughs> it just it felt really. Try hard to me. Yeah. There's a, a film, Australian film from 1982, same time, but of a much bigger budget, called Starstruck. And it's just kind of a, a fun little rock. I probably find it really cringy now. But there was a, a, a little bit in it 
uh, where the the boy character, he's only about 14 or something like that, has this daydream and it's, to, it's, it's one of the songs. And one of the images in the day, he's, he's wondering what he wants to be because he wants to be a star, is um, a, a really direct evocation of the band Kiss. You've got like a Gene Simmons type kabuki makeup kind yeah. of thing in there. And at the time I thought, most of this movie is okay, but Jesus, that's horrible. And it's cut. I don't know if it's in the any sort of current cut of the film, and I think that might have been a licensing thing, sort of a you can't do this. We own that mm-hmm. look. I hope it's it's it was something as definite as that. Um, it'd be nice to think that someone looked at it and said, mm, "I can't have this a, a cringing little thing in there," because it looked like someone who had no con- uh, connection to the culture claiming it. Or at least saying, well, this is what it is. It looks like an outsider's mm. view, which is possibly a good time to talk about Slava Tsukum. Yes, the Russian director mm. uh, who was uh, relatively new to New York City. Mm. And uh, um, I guess what you, you've got is this sort of uh, outsider's take, perhaps, yeah. on that culture. And so he's almost looking at that culture uh, as an alien, literally as an alien. Yep. Um, yep. which uh, is kind of interesting. The weird thing about the geography of the film is that the apartment, um, you know, Anne uh, shares the apartment with her lesbian lover. Yeah. And so I, I guess that's another thing we should talk about mm-hmm. because I think sexuality, sexuality mm-hmm. and queerness is a huge part of this yep. film. Mm-hmm. But the apartment looks out on the Empire State Building, yeah. which is... Um, what is it? I think it's like 34th Street and 5th Avenue, okay. which is not downtown, yeah. right? Uh, but everything else kind of like says, okay, he's looking at that downtown kind of sure. culture. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? Maybe she could afford an apartment uh, in, or, in that part of the city or I don't know. But it, it, it yeah. I see where you're coming from there. It's, it's like a, they don't do this so much anymore. But uh, if, if I saw a cop show that was shot in Melbourne, I know that they can't be outside Flinders Street Station and sure. then St Kilda five seconds later. You know, yeah, that yeah, just yeah. doesn't happen. And but of course, it's a, it's the Empire State Building is an icon. It says New the, York, and I guess I, I think that's the more important thing. Yeah, because they wanted to show him because this is being done without permits. It's being done really on the They call yeah. it guerrilla filmmaking now. Then yeah. it was just like clueless, like thumping around, yeah. um, which is part of this this guy's mo. He, he's not he's not gone on to any kind of major mm. cinematic career, but uh, and he, he certainly was. He was Russian, and he also had. Um, Connections with uh, family connections, I think, or maybe industry connections in Israel as well, which is kind of bouncing to the USA that way. Yeah. Now, uh, he's Russian, but he wasn't Soviet. He wasn't some sort of Soviet filmier, kind mm-hmm. of like uh, Tarkovsky or somebody mm-hmm. like that. He, he didn't have any standing. He'd made some things. He'd made some television. But this is the first, this is his debut fiction feature. Which I find is extraordinary because it's got it's got two things going on. Now we will definitely talk uh, about sexuality, but just the the conceit in the that basic premise: the aliens are not just there to be taken to the Earth leader; they're there for smack. They're there for a, a neural hit because they've probably gone throughout. Um, the galaxies doing this, and that's the way they they do it. That's the, one of the most interesting aliens. It remains one of the most interesting designed aliens. The other thing about that is that they they are just pure neurons. You talk about the mask. That's the first shot 
indeed, you see everything. And that becomes the face of the alien because that's where you see the apartment through when the alien's looking. You see that sort of um, uh, black light kind of, or what did you describe it as before? There's another thing, pixelated, ashes to ashes, negative, something like that. Yeah, ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and the aliens reside in the mask, so that becomes kind of the alien's face. But it's the, the, the notion of aliens you don't even get to see is pretty... And the fact that there are these tiny flying saucers, yeah, so there's yeah. this tiny flying saucer <laughs> that you can pick up like a frisbee. It's like a yeah. dinner plate, yeah, or a frisbee. Yeah. Um, which is fascinating because they're reducing all of that uh, to like a like Spain went to different parts of the world for gold. So there's a definite thing coming back, a reward coming back to create value back in the old world. These aliens aren't doing that. They're just hitting up, which I think is fascinating. And I think the other things you just brought up about uh, Tsukuman himself being an alien, I think that's really, really important. I don't think, because I'm sticking by this, I don't think it excuses, and I'll, I'll explain one in a second, uh, what I found to be a really shallow ideal uh, idealized view of like the new romantic or the sort of the, the fashion culture. And it is, I'm saying this not knowing that that might have been exactly, it might have been like a, a realistic photo, real portrait hmm. of the scene. I don't know. It just struck me as being try hard. Um, now, the other side of that, about that, it's not that he couldn't have known because his collaborator was Anne Carlyle. Yeah. Um, it's unclear in a lot of these things, and there's not a lot written about it. There's apparently a documentary that I'd like to see. Um, now, she would have known. Well, I also think she was embedded in that um, downtown club yeah, culture. That's what I'm saying, yeah. So she was part of, she would have gone to the mud club, she would have gone to CBGBs, she would have observed that yeah. kind of punk, post-punk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She probably is from Connecticut, I don't know. I think... Um, what is interesting for me, though, is the way that the film does resonate with the kind of history um, of that time. So uh, I'm looking at, last night I had a look at um, uh, Basquiat okay. um, for another uh, purpose. And uh, one of the things that struck me about the film was that Basquiat played in a band, in a noise band, and there's a scene where you see him on stage at the mud club with his band. And uh, it reminded me a little bit of the scene in Liquid Sky with, um, uh, you know, what is it, my rhythm box? Yes, oh, you know, yeah. this well, is let's, the, let's um, talk about that because, yeah, yeah, that's a great yeah. scene because there you've got that kind of, you know, what I see to be a very New York phenomena, mm -hmm. the kind of performance in the club, yeah. this kind of performance art meets music meets fashion. Yeah. That's the kind of thing. And you see this in Basquiat as well. Me and my... Are you jealous, folks? Are you jealous, folks? 
there is a sense in which when I saw it back then, I, I can't really remember what I made of it. Now I kind of look at it and think, well, are they taking the piss? Is mm. this ironic? Or, you know, because the whole playing style, the performance style in the film is it, it very deadpan kind mm. of, you know, and I remember like one of the lines, and I'm not sure that the line is actually in the film, but um, Jimmy is always asking for drugs. You, you got any drugs? Yep. You got any drugs? Mm -hmm. And this was, we used to like, you know, we'd go over to someone's house and you got any drugs? <laughs> you, <like laughs> you know, because, okay. yeah, yeah. So we'd start quoting the film and, right. you know, it became, oh, okay. yeah, that's how much of an impact it had. Where wow. we, we remembered lines and we were, I mean, we were all mainly smoking pot. Some of us were taking uh, acid and mm -hmm. uh, maybe heroin as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, that performance also kind of um, resonated with things I saw in Perth as well, like people trying to... I, I remember there was a place in the 80s in Perth called the Wisbar. Mm -hmm. uh, Murray Street, perhaps? Can't really remember. You'd go downstairs and uh, you'd see off the wall acts. I saw one of the, the greatest musical performances I've ever seen was by this unknown Ethiopian band that, that had just set up and... Uh, totally and utterly blew me away okay. their musicianship but they also used to have um, uh, kind of poets and people beating drums mm. and doing sort of bad beat poetry over the sure. top all that stuff was happening and so uh, the whisper had a little bit of that vibe sometimes okay. you know you know you'd, and you'd always be well me and my friends would always be stoned like yeah. we would go into these places so that you know, when the actors in Liquid Sky are kind of, you know, speaking in monotone, yeah. it's hard to know whether that is a deliberate dramatic strategy, mm -hmm. you know, kind of alienation effect where um, he has deliberately decided to get the actors to take out any kind of, you know, like kind of traditional actorly mm -hmm. uh, approach to their roles out of the equation or whether... Uh, these are just amateurs who can't do any better, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. So um, it is hard to tell because yeah. the acting style really just verges into trash often. Yeah. Particularly, weirdly, Paula Sherpert, who plays Adrian, the um, drug dealer, yeah. who does the rhythm box thing. So this is the lesbian lover yeah. of... Um, yeah. Now, she's, she uh, was in another film, like an American giallo called Communion. It's got yeah. Like, has other uh, titles because a lot of them did, uh, where she's a killer. Yeah. Uh, like a teen or 12-year-old or something. She's like got that. a great face. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. She yeah. has a little girl's face. Yeah. And um, she's, like, carried that through to how old she was, how much older she was in Liquid Sky. Um, but I find her performance just overstated. Mm-hmm. And she's the, the, the most you'd call a veteran out of the entire cast. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's... it's Because it is very hard to tell, I don't know if that's intentional or not. Mm. I, I don't know if it's intentional or not that uh, Anne Carlyle plays Jimmy far better than she plays Margaret. Yeah. She's not convincing as Margaret. It sounds like... She, and this is a film that actually had a lot of rehearsal time for its actors. Yeah. It's just the, the main core, I guess. But none of them 
it either they were rehearsed into woodenness, which I guess can happen, yeah. um, <clears throat> or they, as you say, they might just not have been that good. But she does shine as Jimmy, who in it, that seems like an intentional performance. It seems like the kind of aloofness you're talking about. You got any drugs? Like yeah. Anything you wouldn't know. That. Yeah. And, she's, and the, the scenes with his mother, that kind of yeah. thing, where he's still that. He just doesn't change. I can understand that. That's a far more believable performance of character created through performance than Margaret is. Now, why? Well, this may sound strange, but Margaret in the film um, is a character who is consistently having bad, bad sex. Mm -hmm. You know, she's raped. Um, there's a, a, a sense of disquiet about uh, the way Anne Carlyle takes on that role. Mm -hmm. uh, and once again, it's hard to know whether that's deliberate, whether she's actually becoming incredibly like stoic and perhaps a little less uh, uh, engaged with the part because of the nature of that character. Um, no one enjoys sex, you know. I mean, yeah, it, it's a it's a very it's either rape or it's passionless. That's right. Uh, uh, or towards the end, it it it's uh, an act that uh, is executed with murderous intent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yes, yeah. so uh, it's a strange kind of role, and um, the androgyny, I think, is like a real feature of this film. When I was taught that to be an actress, one should be fashionable. And to be fashionable is to be androgynous. And I am androgynous not less than David Bowie himself. And they call me beautiful. And I kill with my gun. Isn't it fashionable? I can't even remember whether I knew that Anne Carlyle was playing both Jimmy and Margaret when I first saw the film. Okay. I think someone like said, "Oh, you know that <laughs> that you know." So well, that's the, true. That's true. Yeah, yeah the, the, the performances are that different because it's yeah. the same person. It doesn't take you very long. To and so perhaps with, you know what you're pointing to is the fact that she maybe was trying or trying too hard to to differentiate those two characters. Okay. Um, I'm not sure, but I quite enjoyed um, the um, performance generally, you know. Uh, she certainly captured that, um, I don't know, there was a, you know, the, what I'm calling like the Bowie Warhol mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. culture. That she, she looked like she could have come out of the factory. Or, yeah, uh, easily. easily. Um, so, yeah. But to get back to... Um, sex, what did you make of the gender bending and the, I mean, we're two straight guys here yeah, exactly. like talking yeah. about a film, which I imagine is something that uh, found an audience with, uh, you know, the queer culture, yeah, yeah, both at the time and today when you look at it, you can't help but think about um, the fact that um, the film's made at a time where people start to become aware of AIDS. So it looks like it's 
you know, you have sex and you die. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a, you know, is it a cautionary tale? Is it, is it prescient in some way? Um, I don't know. What did you make of uh, that aspect of the film? Well, you take that back to the motivation for um, the aliens to do this because that drives Margaret to appear to get nymphomaniacal because she just realises she can get rid of people. She doesn't mm. like get rid of the, the, the rapist uh, uh, soap star guy, mm. get rid of the, the rapist junkie, um, get rid of the horrible right. Jimmy. A cunt that kills. Well, that's what she says. That, that's actually... She would have written that line, I kill with my cunt. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big, brave line for even an indie uh, American film to come out with because it's, it's, it's repeated a few times and she means it. Well, so, when you look at the way she's treated throughout the film, well, why wouldn't she mean it? Well, she also yeah. reveals that she doesn't have orgasms. Yeah. So that's why she's in, it's not suicide when she yeah. has. Uh, which, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and in the act of uh, a kind of trying to join the aliens at the end, it's in self-annihilation because she takes enough heroin for them to respond to her. Um, it, I think there's a lot of consequences there, but it's not the same kind of consequence uh, correlation that you get in the worst of the slasher films. Like two teens get it off in the forest and suddenly they're at the end of a machete. Well, quite often, well, I, I think at least in two instances, um, what you see are people having sex in public, certainly when, um, you know, where Jimmy and Margaret Oh, yeah, of course, they're at a party. I mean, <laughs> a photo shoot. Yeah. That's right. They're at a photo shoot. They're at a fashion photo shoot. And um, I think Margaret is dared to give Jimmy a head job. Yeah. And then as he's coming, of course, the aliens are waiting and mm -hmm. he disappears. And, but all the time people are watching. Yeah. So sex is a kind of like spectator sport. They're goading around. There's a very kind true. of very uncomfortable uh, element of violence, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and and kind of motif of sexual violence yes. is never far away in this film. No. So uh, and while it's not lauded, it's it it is uh, uh, a resort. The guy can't get what he wants, bam, right. At the center of that you have the death fog. Yeah. Um, and it's intentional. It's like a superpower she has. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the most ironic and strangest superpowers anyone ever gets. And again, this is an alien invasion film. That's what they give to her. And this is the, the, the initial means of death was the, the bodies would be there, but they'd have this glass shard yeah. protruding from their skulls, um, almost as though that was like a, a, this diamond fashioned by the, the mm -hmm. heroin mining mm -hmm. or the um, uh, uh, serotonin mining, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then she finds it difficult to get rid of the bodies. It's almost comical. But then she says, can't she just do something about this? Like she just says it to, to she knows she's talking to the, some whoever's doing this. And they, they do. They clean up for her. And it's an amazing little thing. I really like that, the, the chinchiness of the, the effect. They seem to turn to um, alfoil. And it'll just like it's yeah. um, pixelated in a pixelated fashion. It just shrinks and shrivels and turns into nothing. Straight yeah. away, like... Yeah. Like it's being sucked out of the universe. That's see, that's the kind of thing that I would that I saw and I thought, I like how that was that seemed to be made from two sets. They do a lot with very little. And mm. the remaster is beautiful. Yeah. It's actually come mm. up a treat. It looks yes. great on the big screen. The colours really pop. 
Um, and I think the remaster actually does justice to um, some of the key scenes, you know, the, um, for example, when Margaret is painting her face, yes. you know, the blackout with the, yeah. the glow colours and so forth. Um, all of that works really well. The, as I said, the ashes to ashes style video mm -hmm. effects, mm -hmm. all of that doesn't look cheap. It, it kind of, it fits really well with the aesthetic of the film. Yes, it does. So I think, you know, um, even the music as lo-fi as it is, yeah. um, at certain points it really does kind of add to the ambience and, and the atmosphere. Of, now yeah. and then it does, but it, it also, for me, because um, Zuckerman did it in uh, collaboration with two other musicians, so probably part of that uh, downtown scene as far as the electronic music scene went. Um, and... It sounds like, to me, it still sounds like it was done five years before. Yeah. It doesn't sound like, uh, not Duran Duran, but, um, or, or Craftwork. It doesn't sound like Craftwork. No, it sound sounds like... to me like a video game. You know, it's I got like so, eight yeah. bit sound, yeah. but turned right up on, on almost on the point of distortion. And when was, when did Blade Runner come out? 82? 82. Right. Yeah. So this is. Same year, right? And Blade Runner's... Well, it's, it's Van Gallet's. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like you couldn't get... Deluxe. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, those incredibly fat, lush, mm. you know, orchestral uses of the well, synthesizer I mean, compared the, to this. Yeah, but this is, was done on a Fairlight. I mean, that's state yeah, of the art. Yeah. Um, Fairlight's EMI. That, that's, you could, it even had uh, sampling capabilities. Yes. This is like almost like a, not quite a room-filling synth. That's right, um, but it, uh, it it was it was of its time. But I think the I don't think that is an ambiguous thing. Of is it like I'm going to impose this? Well, I think that was um, a short sightedness, perhaps, or something like that. As far as the composers of the score goes, it just doesn't gel with most of it. But yeah, there are exceptions. Um, I think rhythm box is one exception, and there's and there's another point. There's a club scene too, where it's where the music seems to suddenly become like hi-fi. Well, there is one where it looks like the people are dancing to the music, whether they're not or not. But it actually looks like there's a there's a real meeting of the media. But there's an earlier scene where they're sort of dancing very robotically, like that. Um, where there's no correlation, rhythm or anything uh, between the music and the the yeah. action. I understand that that could be intentional. It's yeah. just the sound of it. I guess what I'm trying to avoid saying is that I'm being very judgmental about the quality of it because it just drives me up. Yeah, I didn't like it either. Yeah. I didn't. And I, was, and I actually thought that something a little bit more, um, even if it was just hi-fi, mm. would have... Mm. Yeah, I don't know, perhaps added something to the atmosphere that the film was trying to provoke. But uh, the other thing that we haven't talked about is um, the kind of subplot of the German scientist yeah. with the Schwarzenegger mm -hmm. voice um, <laughs> that is hunting the aliens. Yeah. And he has this, you know, he, he goes into the apartment of, this it's, woman is Jimmy's mother. Jimmy's mother, mm -hmm. yeah. Who happens says, to live across the road. <laughs> across is, the, yeah, uh, the road from yeah. Uh, I remember finding that very funny back mm -hmm. in the day. Not so much today, right. where 
you know, so the, the conceit is that she's, um, you know, it's a George and Mildred situation, isn't it? Like she's horny and the, yeah, the, the yeah, German yeah. scientist is just, he's got his mind. <laughs> trying no, she's play trying play to seduce it. him and, but, you know, he's yeah. got his um, mind on, uh, I was going to say on the job, the but, but yeah, the job is that, the aliens. That's job. <laughs> yeah. And what they can see with the... Uh, binoculars or the telescopes insanely detailed. <laughs> they know exactly what's going on. That bit just wasn't thought of. And then, he, and then he tries to save Margaret and Margaret tells him to fuck off and kills him, I think. Um, yeah. Doesn't she stab him? Uh, what do you want? My name is Jorn Hoffman. I'm a scientist. I've come to get you out of here. We should leave immediately. What do you know? I've watched you through your window. I have witnessed the death from over there. I know how and why they died. You're in great danger. Come with me. So you tell me why they died. What difference does it make to you now? Come with me. Wait a minute. You come in my place and you want me to leave and you don't want to tell me why? Okay, you have a creature, an alien creature on your roof. Where? I study these creatures. You are in great danger. <laughs> There's a bomb in there. Um, and yeah, and he, he does, but she does reject him, partly because she's uh, pleased with her current situation. She, she can kill with her cunt. Um, but then he does describe that it's because she doesn't have this effect, this neural effect in her own uh, brain, that that's the only reason that this is happening. Mm. Otherwise, she'd be tinfoil herself. She doesn't like the idea of that, but it does inform her as to how to approach going with the aliens because she just doesn't want them to go. Mm. Um, I don't get what they, why they need to go anyway because they've <laughs> gone. Yeah. But it's interesting why she wants to go and it yeah. reminded me of, um, oh, yeah. you know, the Todd Haynes film, um, the one about, um, well, uh, it's a lot of people hate this film, Velvet Goldmine, oh, yeah. which is his sort of Bowie, homage to... Bowie, yeah. yeah, which I actually like. I think it's a great film. But um, the film, if you remember, starts with a spaceship depositing Oscar Wilde on the doorstep of this Victorian yes. home. And the kind of idea here is that Wilde is such... He is an alien. Yes. You know, this narcissistic yes. personality, this wit... Oh. Um, cannot come from Earth. He comes from elsewhere. So in Liquid Sky, it's kind of nice that Anne, who, and, and as you say, she name-checks Bowie and talks about androgyny as, you know, the key to, um, I don't know, existential um, bliss. Um, she wants to be an alien. She mm. is kind of an alien. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. Well, she, yeah, she already is, but she's not yeah. having a lot of fun being an alien, even at... The, the pinnacle of yeah. underground culture where she is. No, I, I agree. That's a, that's a good reading of it. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> it also ties into, I can't remember who wrote this, uh, but I, I still think it's funny. Um, someone posited the idea that, uh, that Bowie was possessed by an alien from about 1969 to about 1981 and then left. And so <laughs> 80s Bowie is what you got. Right. Um, <clears throat> so in, in between you got Low and Ziggy Stardust and... But yeah, no, that's a good reading. Um, she's certainly not happy being an Earthling. Uh, she certainly, even though and she's, not a female Earthling. Yeah, they're true. Yeah, and uh, she was only kind of smiling for the camera in the pictures of you know the the homestead back in Connecticut. Um, in a way that 
others who might seem desperate and, and violent-minded are kind of happy with that whole scene. Like you get the junkie and his uh, partner who just seems to be out of, you know, the Sears catalogue, but he's this junkie. And it's like, okay, I know the point you're making. Mm. But, mm. Um, it's a bit like even where the Empire State Building is mm. for me. Um, and you've got Adrian, who's the, the drug dealer, but she's in a good place. I mean, she's uh, as far as, you know, to scale she is because she's a... A poet who gets indulged uh, at a cool club, and she gets to live off, um, you know, high grade smack mm. or wherever she's, you know, peddling. Everyone else is part of the the fashion industry. There's that incredibly sleazy older guy who was having an affair with Margaret, who's like an acting coach or something like. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he gets dispatched, but he's one of the ones who gets a glass shard and mm. gets um put in a a, a web or out the back or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> I think what we're unraveling here, uh, because going around here, is is that the, the film it does have itself does have complexities which would not be warranted by something that looks and sounds like it does, i.e., um, well below the Spielbergian gold standard of Raiders of the Lost Ark or the things that were in the mainstream at the time. You look at that, and you know that it's a, an indie film, an alternative film. Because it looks like it was made for very little money and a lot of ingenuity, which I think is the case. Does it work as a, an entire thing? Um, not for me, then or now. I, I, I've had to look around the same way as when I saw Rabid for the first time, which was in the 90s, um, on video, gluey little video. And I thought, wow, this acting's terrible. Or it's varied. But the idea is so compelling. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it did have a huge impact on me when I first saw it, um, but it was so long ago, the details of um, that uh, encounter are lost. Um, seeing it, you know, I was so excited to see it in New York. Plus, Anne Carlyle, Carlyle was there and there was right, a Q&A yeah. with her and the director after the film. But um, I just wanted to go home. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was just yeah. bored. Like, uh, But then watching it, uh, in preparation for this discussion mm -hmm. it and watching it critically yeah. uh, meant that it did offer more because, uh, you know, I, I did start to think a little bit more about how rich the film is in mm -hmm. terms of the kinds of themes and issues that it, it approaches. Um, you know, there, there's a sense in which it, I don't know, maybe it's not exactly a cautionary tale, but, you know, there's this idea that with... Um, narcissists associated with you know aestheticism that kind of 19th century idea of aestheticism mm -hmm. where you know you just live your life um, in order to accumulate sensations or pulsations uh, you're not rich because you accrue capital you're rich because of the amount of drugs you take or against the, nature that yeah uh, you know so right. you do whatever you want to do uh, you appreciate beauty and style as opposed to, um, uh, you know, moral values mm -hmm. and, and the rest of it. And there, there seems to be a certain tension in the film between that kind of view. And, um, and I think it's implicit in our conversation. There's another uh, aspect of the film which sees that culture from the point of view of the immigrant alien mm -hmm. as well as the outer space alien, yeah. which sort of looks at it as a vacuous, ultimately hollow sort of culture mm. um, 
So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's definitely not um, a film that uh, is going to, um, you know, make it to any of my top 10 lists yeah. in terms of uh, 80s alternative cinema. But um, it's worthy. And I think this remaster really does show it and present it in its best light. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really does look fantastic. It does, yes. You know? Yes, yes. It, it's a, well, what I saw was a 4K restoration. So yeah. it's, it's had the worst up to it. Well, when it's projected on a big screen, you get that sense of how important the visual style of the film is. Mm -hmm. the as I said, the colours are... Well, it's sumptuous, isn't it? Yeah. Now, yeah. If, my impression of it was interrupted by seeing it on a really bad, badly mastered DVD, which looked mm. like it came from a VHS. It mm. was rubbish, and it was in four by three, which is kind of a clue mm. to that. Um, it had, and I remembered it being a lot richer to look at and to listen to uh, at the Chanel in Brisbane. Mm. And that that's them's were the days when a print would actually physically travel around the world so you get little spots and noise and all, mm. all over the place. But I remember that being a legit film. However much uh, I could see it was made cheaply, yeah. it seemed to be made <clears throat> sincerely um, with a real eye to this is a piece of cinema we are sending out to the world. It, it didn't seem like it was... Um, uh, made from pneumatic video at the time for a quick buck because that that's the bit that isn't in there is it yeah. it's not it's not like a, a band like a record company created new wave band which you could just tell in the second when you saw them on countdown you know like the knack or something like yeah. that um it wasn't the knack even though they were kind of glossy and they think oh no that doesn't convince me this seemed to come from the heart Eve and and does it, I guess, does it transcend its humble production origins? Not always, not consistently. Um, there are passages throughout the film where you, where you just ache for them to just really workshop a bit of performance there, which you're not getting, and it just ends up sounding like something like uh, a John Waters film. True, but I think the greatest value of the film lies in the fact that it was made, and it speaks mm -hmm. to that ethos that we've been... Uh, talking about in all of the podcasts so far that that post-punk era in the 1980s inherited perhaps from you know the punk spirit and from you know that general impulse which I think actually you can trace much further back that um, you can be a artist regardless of your access to funds, regardless of your station in life. Mm. It is possible to make stuff. The important thing is to do stuff. You have been listening to Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about often overlooked or underappreciated aspects of popular culture in the 1980s. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Chetnikov and Glenda Cruz.